Welcome to the Epigenetics Podcast from Active Motif. Join host Dr. Stefan Dillinger for lively discussions with leading epigenetics researchers. Hear about their past experiments, what they're working on now, and what's coming next. You know their papers, now get to know them and discover the stories behind the science. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Epigenetics Podcast. Today I'm happy to welcome Diana Dickel from the Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory on this show. Please let me briefly introduce you to our audience. Uh, you received your PhD from the Department of Genome Sciences at the University of Washington in the laboratory of Mary Claire King. You then moved to do a postdoc at the Berkeley Lab uh, from 2010 to 2014. You then became a project scientist at the same institute in 2014. And then in 2016, you became department head of the functional genomics department. And since 2020, you are department head of the comparative and functional genomics department. Um, and obviously, you are still there today. <laughs> yes. <laughs> a question I like to ask every guest to start off our little podcast is, how did you become interested in biology in the first place and then in pursuing a career in science? Um, I wasn't one of those kids who really knew from an early age that I wanted to be a scientist. Um, I think as a, as a kid, I really wanted to be a writer, probably kind of in, the, in journalism. Um, I, it wasn't until I got really to high school um, and, and took chemistry that I really started thinking seriously about, about science as a, as a good career path and, and a, something that I was very interested in. Um, and then when I started college, I, um, I took genetics my first year of, of college and really just fell in love with it. And I went to a college where I was lucky enough to be encouraged to, to do a, 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 an internship in a lab. Uh, doing actual hands-on experiments um, and uh, starting my second year of, of college. Uh, so I joined the lab of Ed Cook, who was a child psychiatrist at the, at the University of Chicago, who uh, did a lot of genetics of, of uh, childhood onset uh, psychiatric disorders. And I really just um, loved it a lot because it, it was a good combination of, of neuroscience and, and genetics. And I, I that was when I really started getting very, very serious about thinking about um, going into science as a career. Yeah, coming to your science, um, that centers around enhancers, their conservation, and their role in mammalian development. Um, mm -hmm. To get started, can you maybe give a brief introduction into the field of enhancers and why they are so important? Yeah, so um, enhancers, the enhancer field, I think, really came out of um, the observation that so much of the human genome is, is non-coding. So um, less than 5% of the genome actually makes proteins. Um, and there was this big question for a long time, what is the other 95% of the, of the genome doing? Um, and in the, the 90s and early 2000s, with the rise of the sequencing programs um, to, to generate reference genomes for the human um, uh, human genome and also for genomes of other, other um, organisms, uh, there was a lot of interest in aligning sequences between, between these genomes and trying to look for, for regions that are very highly conserved uh, between different species to identify uh, sites that may be functional. Um, and so this was a really remarkable way of, of identifying enhancer sequences, which turned out to be these, these sites uh, that activate gene expression in specific cell types or at specific stages of development and are really important for, for setting appropriate gene expression to, to um, allow for organisms, organisms to develop properly. So I wanted to do an episode on enhancers uh, yeah, since the beginning of the podcast, and I was uh, looking for 
like the history of the enhancers. So can you tell us how long they are around? So when do, did they first get discovered? So I think, you know, gene regulatory elements have been well under, uh, well recognized for a long time, going back to even, you know, early work in, in E. coli with the LAC operon and, and understanding gene regulation um, and how that's, that's encoded in bacteria. Um, I think, you know, some of the best early examples in, in human go back to um, the beta globin locus and, and the locus control region, which was this very large um, region upstream of, of the, the beta globin genes uh, that, that uh, work from, from human, uh, human genetics of, of people with, um, with blood disorders. Um, identified this 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 large non-coding region upstream of of uh, of the beta globin genes that was important for for their expression. So you could have people who um, had you know large deletions of this region that didn't affect any protein coding genes, but they had they had phenotypes that were similar to what you would see if if some of the genes in the region were were deleted. Coming back to your work, so in 2014, you were first author on a Nature, nature Methods paper that describes a method called SIF-seq or SIF-seq um, mm -hmm. to identify actually the enhancers. Um, so how does this work and what enabled it you to find? So this is a bit similar to what people now call massively parallel reporter assays or NPRAs. Um, what we were really interested in doing at the time um, was I, was being able to just wholesale test regions of the genome for, for enhancer function. Um, this was uh, after methods like ChIP-seq had been discovered or had been had been widely adopted to identify, identify enhancer sequences. Um, but we really were kind of very interested in understanding how, how accurate are methods like ChIP-seq to identify enhancers? How do they compare against, um, against the um, kind of what's thought of as the gold standard, which are these reporter assays? Uh, where you link enhancers uh, to a reporter gene, such as GFP or, or LAC-C, um, and deliver them to either a cell or what we often do in our lab, which is delivering them to a, a, a mouse egg and looking at the, the resulting mouse embryos to see where the reporter gene is, is expressed. Um, what SIFSeq did was, um, was trying to, uh, to, in a way, merge Uh, MPRA assays with in vivo um, in, in vivo work, although it was entirely in, um, in in cell culture. So what we did was was we wanted to take the enhancer reporter constructs and actually integrate them into a specific region of the genome, so that we could then take the cells that we that we delivered these to and differentiate them into different cell types um, or different. Um, I think now what you would you would call like organoids. Um, so we uh, and we wanted to do this in a way that you could test you know really large regions of the genome for in, in small increments for enhancer activity. Um, so we did this. We took a, um, a back back um, a library um, or a, a back chromosome, a bacterial artificial chromosome, um, and just randomly shredded it and, and it integrated the pieces upstream of a reporter gene, took those plasmids, integrated them into the, into the mouse genome and into mouse ES cells, and uh, then differentiated the cells into, into different cell types, so cardiomyocytes or, or um, neural progenitors, um, and, and looked to see which, um, which uh, enhancers actually caused the, the, the reporter gene to, to activate. And we did that using uh, uh, fax sorting. So we used a fluorescently active reporter. 
So compared to ChipSeq and all those sequencing methods, this doesn't sound like a straightforward essay, right? So you don't set it up on Monday and have the results on Friday, but it's, it's rather time-consuming. No, but what we have found um, from some more recent work that we've done as, as part of uh, the ENCODE project, we really have found that there are some limitations to, to ChipSeq. Um, so ChipSeq is a really good um, uh, method of identifying enhancers. Um, but what we've noticed is that uh, when we've done uh, a lot of testing of, of uh, ChipSeq peaks um, uh, that, that have different levels of, of, of enrichment in the ChipSeq assay, um, so there mean, really you is... Mean, a, you mean the height of the peak? Yeah, the height of the peak or the, the enrichment of the, the peak yeah. relative to the input. Um, you can actually have, um, you know, the ones that are, are the peaks that are highly enriched are ex are very commonly active enhancers in reporter assays. But as you go down the list to, to peaks that show less enrichment, um, these often don't perform as well as enhancers in reporter assays. Um, and I think so we're, we're still trying to figure out kind of what are the at what point do you stop calling something an enhancer in a, in a ChIP-seq assay? Um, so what are you looking then in a ChIP-seq assay when you're looking for enhancers? So which marks are you are you using? We use almost exclusively H3K27 acetyl. Um, and there's been a lot of, of interest, um, again, work from ENCODE to... Um, to combine some of the marks to, to look for, for what is the really the best combination of marks. Um, and, and for some work that, that was done, um, particularly by, by Mark Gerstein, it looks like a combination of K27 acetyl and uh, open chromatin, like for uh, DNA hypersensitivity are, are really um, good, very, very good um, uh, markers of, of enhancer activity. Or nowadays you would use ataxic probably. Yeah. <laughs> um, you then used the, the CIF-seq assay to look at heart enhancers. So why did you look at those heart enhancers and what did you find there? Um, so we were, as I said, we were interested in, in trying to, to find enhancers really that would have in vivo activity, but in an in vitro assay. Um, and so uh, our, our group has a long history of, of working in cardiac development. Um, we had a good collaborator in Benoit Bruneau, whose lab had really... Um, Uh, uh, was able to, to, to help us out with the, the differentiation and had this very good cardiac differentiation assay. And so I worked with a, a, a technician in, in Benoit's lab uh, to, to differentiate the, the ESL libraries that we had, we had generated into, into cardiomyocytes. Um, and so what we, what we did was we, for this particular, um, what we showed in the paper was we tiled across the myosin heavy chain Six and myosin heavy chain seven locus. These are two genes that are uh, structural that encode structural proteins that are really critical for for cardiac um, cardiac contraction um, and relaxation. And um, so, uh, what we ended up finding was that there were a few enhancers upstream of the myosin heavy chain seven gene that really looked to to, um, to drive the the expression of myosin heavy chain seven in the in the heart in cardiomyocytes specifically. So in this case, or is it like a general theme that you don't have like one enhancer per gene, but you m might have several? 
Yes. Yeah. So I think uh, we we have another um, we had another paper subsequent to that that uh, this was from Marco Osterwalder, who's now who recently started a faculty position back in Switzerland um, that looked at this idea of enhancer redundancy that how many genes have multiple are mul- uh, associated with multiple enhancers, and it does particularly for um, genes that are that encode transcription factors that are important for developmental. Um, uh, processes, many of those genes have many, many different enhancers. And some of them are, are tr- you know, p- look tr- truly redundant with each other, where they have activities in the exact same domains um, or the exact same um, times during development. Um, and But some look to actually, you know, finely tune the activity of or the expression of the gene uh, in, say, different stages of development or different, um, different uh, cell types. Actually, that would have been one of my next questions. So maybe we can dive into that uh, already now. So, so there is it, it's possible that like one enhancer has several target genes, and that one target genes has several upstream enhancers, and everything is connected, obviously, and that it's not like just one loop that, but maybe several loops form on the same position to bring all kinds of. I'm just waving with my hands now, <laughs> I'm bringing all all kinds of um, factors to those. To this genes to enhance transcription, probably. Mm-hmm. Is is that um, how? Yeah, this uh, yeah concept, or how you envision the concept? Maybe that's the right question here. Yeah, and I mean, it it probably isn't in in one you know nucleus. It probably isn't that a promoter is touching every single enhancer at the same time that regulates its gene expression because there's clearly enhancers. Um, that have, you know, that regulate the same gene that have slightly different um, spatial domains of of activity. So um, in in Marco's paper, um, he showed two limb enhancers of of the gene GLEE3 um, that were both active in the limb, um, but were active in slightly different regions of the limb. Um, So you probably, you know, in the region where each enhancer is active, only that enhancer or that combination of enhancers that are active in that that spatial domain are, are actually t- um, probably uh, touching the promoter, whereas you probably have other enhancers that are that are now held farther apart from the the promoter um, because they don't activate the expression of the gene in that particular context. So it's again a, a, a question of your viewpoint. So are you looking at like a single cell experiment, or are you looking at the experiment at a population basis? Um, we're increasingly moving to single cell, although we haven't done much in the way of, of like chromatin organization and single cells. Um, so we're still, I think, largely in the in the population um, in the population basis or population view of of the work. Yeah. So um, you also investigated like ultra conserved enhancers, and uh, this is also the angle where I I was uh, yeah. Um, um, made aware of your work because of some publications that I that I found. Um, and in 2018, uh, you were uh, on a cell publication, looking at those ultra conserved enhancers and their role in development. So, what defines those ultra conserved enhancers? Okay, so this goes back to what we um, were talking about at the beginning, where um, back in the days of of the Human Genome Project. Um, people were very interested in sequencing other organisms as well in order to identify sites that were highly conserved between human and and other species. 
Um, so the other, uh, the uh, two of the other genomes that came out at around the same time as the Human Genome Project uh, was going on were the, the mouse genome and the rat genome. Um, and so an investigator named Gil Bejarano, who was a, at the time a postdoc with David Hauser at UC Santa Cruz, uh, looked, uh, he aligned the human, the mouse, and the rat genomes and looked for sites that were extremely well conserved. Um, and by his definition, he said they had to be at least 200 base pairs of just perfect uninterrupted sequence conservation um, between human, mouse, and rat. Um, and so that... Um, and he, he called these sites ultra-conserved sequences. Um, and at the time, he noticed that they, you know, very few of them, only about a quarter of them, were, were protein-coding uh, regions of the genome, um, that, that the vast majority of them, about three-quarters of them, looked to be, to be non-coding. And even more interestingly, many of them, that, that's, that selection of non-coding ultra-conserved sequences was enriched near uh, developmental transcription factor genes. Um, so he had this idea that many of these are probably regulatory sequences for uh, genes that are really essential for, for embryonic development and developmental patterning. So how many of those are there? <laughs> so yeah, like, so like there, were, there were 481 um, by his uh, strict definition of human mouse uh, rat perfect conservation of 200 base pairs. And, you know, if, if you dial down the, the number of bases that you require to be uh, perfectly conserved, you can get far more. So I think if you go to a hundred base pairs of perfect conservation, you can get to like 5,000 or something of these sites um, between the uh, human mouse and rat genomes. Um, and then there's very few that are that are even you know longer than 200 base pairs. Um, there's a I think the longest one is about seven or 800 base pairs okay. in the human genome. So and those are then regions that are very important for development, I guess, because that's what evolution uh, conserves the most, probably. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I'm just thinking of my next question. I'm sorry. Um, so earlier this year, um, you looked at also the sequence con. The sequence conservation of those ultra-conserved enhancers. Um, what did you then find there, and uh, also about the importance of sequence conservation in those um, enhancers? So I think I have to present some of the earlier work um, before we talk about the the new yeah. the new paper. So you you just said um, something that was a, a very interesting comment that uh, you know the conservation should seem to imply that they're very very critical for 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 development um, or for for um, for organisms. And so a, uh, a researcher named Nadava Hituf um, uh, had this project in about 2008, where he deleted uh, four of these, these highly conserved, these ultra conserved sequences from the mouse genome. Um, and really kind of shockingly to everyone, um, the mice were apparently normal. Um, so they didn't have any obvious um, major developmental defects. They didn't have any uh, decreases in viability or fertility. Um, they seemed pretty much fine. Um, they didn't also didn't seem to have kind of any obvious changes in, in gene expression. Um, and this was, I think, because these sites were so well conserved, this was really surprising to a lot of people in the field. Like, why are these sites so well conserved if you can delete them from a mouse from the mouse genome and not cause, you know, really substantial problems to the to the mouse genome or to the to the the mouse the mouse's um, health um so we revisited this in uh 
starting around 2014, when CRISPR-Cas9 became um, became available for use to do genome engineering, um, we were we were you know trying to kick around ideas of like, well, what if we have this really amazing tool where we can we can delete you know pretty much anything from the mass genome really easily. Um, what kinds of questions do we want to do we want to answer with it? And one of the things that we we um, we talked about was revisiting this idea of of um, knocking out ultra conserved enhancers and seeing, you know, why are these sites conserved if if you can apparently knock them out in the genome and and have no 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 issues to the mice. Um, so what we did was we focused on one specific locus of the genome, and this is a, was the cell paper you referenced earlier. Um, and this region um, is on the X chromosome and it contains the uh, ARX transcription factor gene. And this gene is really critical for, for brain development, also for the development of um, the pancreas and the, the testes. Um, we had uh, previously identified that four of the ultra conserved sequences in the vicinity of the ARX gene were uh, enhancers that were uh, driving expression in the developing brain, uh, developing forebrain, um, in the regions of the forebrain where ARX is, is expressed. Um, so this locus, as I said, has four ultra-conserved brain enhancers. It has a number of other um, ultra-conserved sequences in the vicinity of, of the gene, although none of them have, uh, to our knowledge, have, have brain enhancer activity. Um, and this, this locus also contains some of the longest ultra-conserved sequences. So as I said, the longest one is about seven or 800 base pairs. So it, this, that enhancer is in the, in the ARX locus. So what we really wanted to understand was um, if we knock out any of these enhance, you know, it looks like there, this ARX locus has four potentially redundant ultra-conserved brain enhancers. Um, and, but we really wanted to know, like, are they actually redundant with one another functionally? Um, or if you knock out any individual one, uh, will you actually get a phenotype, maybe not a full lethality type phenotype, which is what people were expecting to begin with, with, um, with the deleting the ultra conserved sequences. Um, but could you still get maybe a developmental phenotype that would still potentially be under selective pressure, or, you know, under negative selection um, if the mouse was out in the wild or something. Um, so what we did was we deleted each of these four enhancers individually. Um, and then we also deleted them in, in, pair, in two, two sets of pairs um, where we deleted uh, you know, two enhancers at a time that had similar activity profiles. Um, and what we found was, again, all of the mice were viable. They were fertile. They didn't seem to have, they didn't seem to have any major, major problems. Um, but when we looked really carefully and we teamed up with a, a, a neuroscientist uh, named John Rubenstein and a couple of the postdocs in, in his lab um, to help us look very carefully at the, 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 brains, um, the brains of these mice to see if there were any, any problems. And lo and behold, in uh, two out of the four cases where we deleted just a single enhancer, we did find pretty substantial brain abnormalities. Um, in the mice, um, one line had a severe hippocampal defect. Um, another line had um, a, a altered densities of different neuron populations, particularly uh, cholinergic neurons and other interneuron uh, types. Um, and then one of the a third um, of the single enhancer knockout lines, the mice were just overall smaller um, than than their wild type litter mates. And so, you know, really the you know, revisiting the, the original knockout paper where 
the the moral of the story there was that the um you know deleting ultra conserved sequences or ultra conserved sequences aren't required for for viability um are you know are the, the cell paper really told us or this project that that went into the cell paper really told us that while they're not really a critical for for just outright viability they are important like really critical for for normal developmental patterning um and that there was the mice probably could have some sort of of um uh, selection deficit in the in in the wild um, if they had these types of phenotypes and had to you know really live in in, in normal um, environmental conditions. So that um, that project really told us that why generally ultra conserved sequences are conserved um, because they do seem to have some sort of importance for developmental patterning. But what they didn't tell us is why are they perfectly conserved between human, mouse, mm -hmm. and rat. Um, because there's been a subsequent, there's been a tremendous amount of work looking at um, the importance of different base pairs in enhancer function, and where people will take enhancers, they'll mutagenize them, they'll look at the um, the the resulting activity, um, and by and large, what people are finding there is that you know small changes to enhancer sequence, you know, changing a base here, or changing a base there don't really substantially alter the activity of the enhancers. Okay. Um, because there's a lot of redundancy in um, transcription factor binding sites. So there's many enhancers have um, multiple copies of the same transcription factor binding site, um, or they um, are bound by transcription factors that have, you know, probably somewhat similar, similar functions. So what we really wanted to see are these just really unusual enhancers that that may be very um, very susceptible to enhancer uh, to, to mutagenesis. So um, you know one hypothesis that we were we were interested in testing is you know these sites are perfectly conserved. Does that mean that every single base pair in that enhancer is required for the enhancer's activity? Um, and so this was a project taken on by a um, postdoc in our group named Valentina Snetkova, um, who took uh, 23 of these ultra-conserved enhancer sequences that are active during embryogenesis and um, mutated 5% or 2% of the base pairs, 5% of the base pairs, or 20% of the base pairs. Um, and linked each of those different alleles of the enhancer to a reporter and then tested them in our, using our transgenic mouse assay, where we take these enhancers, link them to a laxy reporter gene, um, inject them into, into mouse eggs, and then look at the resulting mouse embryo to see where the, the reporter is, is expressed. Um, and really interesting, what she found was that in about 80, 85% of the cases, um, mutating 2% of the bases didn't really substantially alter the enhancer activity. Um, so that was pretty surprising to us as to, to why, you know, um, why are these sites so, you know, perfectly conserved? Um, and as you mutate more and more bases, you do have um, uh, more and more effects on the enhancers. So if you mutate 5% of the enhancers, um, about 50% of them have no activity. Um, although we did have one enhancer where we mutated 20% of the bases and it still had some enhancer activity. The, the activity was diminished, but not completely abolished, which was just really bizarre to us. Um, so we also looked at a couple of different hypotheses that had been, uh, had been proposed to explain why ultra-conserved sequences may be, um, may be uh, so well-conserved. 
Um, and another hypothesis that was put forward that maybe these sites are really susceptible to what are called gain of function mutations, where a mutation, uh, any uh, mutations that would commonly happen wouldn't abolish the enhancer activity, but would potentially um, lead to additional enhancer activity that wasn't seen in the in the in the the original sequence. Um, and we did find a few examples of these. So there were maybe four um, alleles that we tested that uh, where we had mutated an ultra-conserved enhancer, where the enhancer all of a sudden had activity in a different tissue um, or in the, the same tissue as the, the wild-type allele, um, but at a much stronger level or a much more re reproducible level. Um, so you know, and looking at, at, at those two hypotheses on one hand, you know, some of the enhancers or ultra-conserved sequences are susceptible to, to loss of function mutations that abolish the enhancer activity. We found a few cases of those, but it didn't really broadly explain why all of the, the ultra-conserved enhancers we looked at were, were ultra-conserved. Um, we then, you know, looked at the, the, the gain-of-function hypothesis where, you know, mutating these potentially leads to additional enhancer activity that could potentially even be more detrimental to, to an organism than a loss of, of, of enhancer activity mutation. Um, and that explained maybe a couple of cases, but not broadly many cases. Um, so the last thing we looked at was one thing that we noticed um, when we were looking at some chromatin data was that many of these ultra-conserved enhancers are, are not active are not are probably not active at one specific stage of development. They're probably active at many different stages of development. Mm -hmm. So um, as part of, of ENCODE, we had a, a project with Bing Ren where we did chip seek on a panel of different mouse um, embryonic mouse tissues from about mid-embryogenesis all the way to birth. Um, so we had this really nice catalog of, um, of predicted enhancers across. Um, a large span of, of mouse embryogenesis. And in looking at that data, we could see that many of these ultra-conserved sequences were marked by K27 acetylation um, at many different uh, in, at many different developmental time points. Um, so it's not like the, the enhancer comes on for a very brief developmental window and then turns off, um, that many of these are probably active for, for multiple stages. Um, so the, the last um, thing that, that Valentino then looked at was you know, could uh, could these enhancer, what we see as ultra-conserved enhancers, could mutating them potentially have different effects on the enhancer activity at one developmental stage versus a different developmental stage? So are some of the base pairs in that enhancer potentially important for the enhancer's activity at E11.5 um, or at one particular developmental time point, and then other uh, sequences within that enhancer, that ultra-conserved sequence, be important for the enhancer's activity at a later developmental time point. Because this would then hint that different transcription factors would be involved because it's yes. a different binding motif? Yes, yeah, exactly. Um, so we took... Um, we we everything that we had done you know up to up to now had been in one one developmental stage um all of our tests had been at one particular developmental stage which was what we call embryonic day 11.5 so it's about halfway through mouse embryogenesis um so valentina took um 10 of the enhancer or 10 of the the enhancers um that we had mutated um 
at at E11.5, and and at that time point, they had no effect. The mutations had no effect on the enhancer activity. So she took those enhancers and those those mutated alleles and retested them at a later developmental stage at at embryonic day 14.5. And in in that case, all 10 of the the wild type, the unmutated alleles did uh, did function as enhancers at that later embryonic stage. Um, So we have now established that these these enhancers, these ultra-conserved enhancers, many of them are active across a pretty wide span of development. Um, and then when she went and tested the, the mutated alleles, and, and again, these mutated alleles that she tested at this later developmental time point had no effect at the, on, on the enhancer activity at the earlier developmental stage. So all of them were completely normal at 11.5. When she tested them at, at 14.5, about half of them did substantially alter the activity of the enhancer. Um, so there is probably... Um, something to this idea that that these ultra-conserved sequences are active at at many different uh, developmental stages and that, you know, different different, um, binding sites or different sequences are are critical for that that enhancer's activity at different different developmental stages. Coming to the sequences, um, is there anything like popping up that characterizes those enhancer sequences? Are they... AT rich are they GC rich? Uh, is there some uh, different motives present um, that would define them? Yeah, so we did. Um, we we looked at this in a in a variety of ways. So we looked at which you know transcription factor binding sites are just enriched in general in ultra conserved sequences, and this is work too that had been done previously by by other labs. And there are there are some um, specific transcription factors that are that are enriched in general in ultra conserved sequences. Um, and then we also looked at for the mutations that we made, are there any um, transcription factor binding sites that are in, are um, where if we hit them, they're going to disproportionately cause pro- cause the enhancer activity to be abolished. Um, and so there were um, so a few cases of transcription factors our transcription factor binding sites that did seem to be enriched among the, the, the mutations that we made. Um, that abolished enhancer activity or altered enhancer activity. Um, it's hard to pinpoint with this small of a, um, given the way that we did the mutagenesis and given how, you know, that it's a, it's still a very, a fairly small um, survey of, of, of mutations that we did, uh, although we did mutate quite a, uh, quite a number of bases. It's hard to pinpoint exact, um, exact, base pairs or exact transcription factor binding sites that are are causing um, the enhancer activity loss when we do um, mutate or when we do uh, see that loss. Um, But we do see some some, um, hints that there are specific transcription factor binding sites that um, if you hit them are more likely to be associated with the loss of the enhancer activity. Was there also work done on DNA repair? Because I think if it's still conserved, you need to make sure that it doesn't get damaged or the sites that don't get damaged. So is there some kind of enrichment of DNA repair factors or something on those enhancers? It could be, we haven't looked at that. So, so one of the the things that is still outstanding is um, there are still an ultra conserved enhancers that we haven't, where we've mutated them at two different time points and they're still fine. Um, And it could be that, that mutating them at yet other time points, they would cause some sort of, of, of uh, enhan- change in the enhancer activity. 
Um, but one thing that that people have um, hypothesized is that there that these ultra conserved enhancers may have functions even beyond enhancer activity. So as you say, maybe some sort of DNA repair. Um, I think there's this hypothesis um, that these ultra conserved sites might be important for um, like lining up uh, sister chromatid and stuff like that, like sister chromosomes and stuff like that during meiosis for, for proper seg segregation or, or something. Um, we haven't looked at, we've really only looked at the enhancer function and assess the enhancer function. There could be yet other functions um, that we haven't, um, that we haven't looked at, um, as you say, for, for things like DNA repair. Yeah, speaking of that, uh, what are you working on right now? And what are your plans for, let's say, the next five years? <laughs> um, <laughs> Or what, what you can say about that, that that's probably the, the right question. Yeah, what I'm really interested in. So um, my background prior to, to coming to Berkeley was in is, was all in human disease genetics. So I, I worked predominantly in psychiatric genetics, trying to understand ident or identify mutations that that were associated with um, with schizophrenia or, or um, obsessive compulsive disorder uh, phenotypes like that. Um, so what I'm really excited about going forward is. I think we're at the stage now where we can actually start um, thinking about how are non-coding sequences impacting human human disease or human phenotypes. Um, I think we finally have kind of the tools in place to be able to do that. Um, so this comes from from whole genome sequencing um, of of human uh, patient cohorts, um, where you can now identify any mutation in a in an individual, um, and there's increasingly large um, uh, projects to, to do this, to sequence, um, you know, people with, with different phenotypes or even who are phenotypically normal or, or not selected for a particular phenotype um, to look for, for mutations that, that are potentially associated um, with their phenotype. And so the, the really the big question now is, well, if you find a non-coding, if you find a protein coding mutation, it's really easy to say like this mutation is going to truncate the protein or it's going to cause an amino acid change. Um, And you know, based on those those predictions, you can say, well, this enhance or this mutation is very likely or very unlikely to be a cause for the phenotype. For non-coding sequence, our understanding is nowhere near that. If we see a mutation in a even in a well-established enhancer, we have no idea at this point without testing it whether or not that mutation is likely to change the enhancer's activity. Um, and therefore the, the expression of, of neighboring genes, um, much less if it's going to, co to cause a particular phenotype. So that's really where I see um, working over the next five years is really trying to understand how do, um, how do you know, mutations in enhancers um, from human, human sequencing studies impact on, um, on gene expression, on organismal viability, on, or, you know, on organismal phenotypes. Yeah, we will be uh, interest. Will be interesting to see what comes out of that, and hopefully we can read about this uh, soon. So to finish off this interview, I have two more general questions. Uh, the first one: Did you at one point of your career face the situation that you reached a dead end, or did not know what how to proceed to unravel the questions that you wanted to answer? Yeah, I would say um, graduate school. <laughs> <laughs> um, so my PhD project uh, was a 
uh, was a, a very much a human genetics uh, project. And so I started graduate school in about 2005. So this was before um, Illumina, what was then, you know, early Celexa uh, was, was available as a, as a sequencing technology. So this was, you know, pre whole genome sequencing or pre exome sequencing. Um, and what I was, what I was doing was, was uh, there's a class of, of, diseases called repeat expansion diseases. So Huntington's disease and fragile X, which some people are, are, are more familiar with, are caused by um, repetitive elements in the genome that are normally small, but, but expand to much larger sizes and, and cause, um, in the case of Huntington's protein aggregation. Um, so the, the, hunting, the mutation that causes Huntington's, you have a CAG codon in the Huntington um, Huntington gene, um, that's normally maybe ten or twenty copies of CAG repeated, um, but expands to like thirty or forty or fifty copies, um, and then that causes the the resulting glutamine um, amino acids in that protein to to aggregate together and and causes neurodegeneration and, and other um, subsequent phenotypes. So there's about actually about thirty of these microsatellite repeat expansion. Um, uh, uh, phenotypes and the 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 commonality among all of them is that they all affect the nervous system. Um, so they all they all cause neurological or uh, movement disorders. And so there was a hypothesis for a long time that maybe these repeat expansions could cause other types of more psychiatric uh, disorders. Um, so I was looking at whether or not um, these microsatellite repeat expansions could ca cause uh, schizophrenia. Um, and so what I did was I, I, this was right, you know, right after the human genome had been sequenced, I identified all of these microsatellite repeats that overlapped, you know, protein coding regions or untranslated regions of genes, um, and that were, you know, reasonably long. And then I genotyped them in like, you know, a whole panel of, of, of people who had been diagnosed with schizophrenia and we didn't really find anything. Um, we really, we didn't, so really our hypothesis was probably wrong. Um, and we could rule out that these microsatellite repeat expansions as a, as a class would be likely to cause a substantial amount of, of, of cases of schizophrenia. Um, but that was kind of it. Um, and so it was, that was really kind of tough, like to have, you know, as like a PhD student to really, you know, face that, like you, you really want to get like a good paper and get a good postdoc and everything. And, um, and instead, you know, I just like I had this project that just it was the hypothesis was wrong. Basic, it was probably wrong, um, and so that was probably the the biggest fall I have ever hit was was that particular project. But uh, you did recover well from from that um, from that hit. So that's yeah, that's and, yeah, and I think that 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 experience caused me to pivot a little bit away from from human genetic, you know, from really kind of. Uh, human disease genetics to, you know, genome function um, and understanding uh, genome regulation or gene regulation. Um, so it did, it did make me kind of, I think, think a little bit more outside the box in terms of postdoc positions and what I wanted to learn um, to kind of complement the work that I had already done and not just stay in the same, in the same area. So that was, a, that was in, in that respect, it was a good experience. Can you give any advice to a PhD student that would have uh, like a comparable situation? Um, I would say, 
Try to salvage as much as you can. I mean, I do think that there, this was back in the day before BioArchive. Um, so I think now with BioArchive, um, there, there's more of a um, there's more of an avenue uh, for people to be able to publish negative, or like publish or, or release negative results. Um, and so I think there is still a lot of value in in making negative results and negative projects public. Um, and um, if I if I was doing this today and facing this situation today, there's no question I would I would at least put it on by our archive because you want to, you know, if somebody's addressed a hypothesis and it's negative, other people shouldn't be shouldn't be doing that right or shouldn't be going after it again in the same way. Um, that's just kind of a waste of everybody's time and, and resources. Um, so I, I'd say like, you know, if you have a negative project now, like you know, at the very least, put it on bioarchive. It's not going to be a nature paper, but it can at least help inform the, the community. And it's documented, right? So it, it doesn't yeah. go to the trash. So, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then, yeah, I think I think that it is possible to recover from, from projects that, that don't go as well. And I mean, I, my feeling has always been that I want to do science that... Um, Everybody wants to do science that's successful, but but in order to really learn things, you also have to take risks and do things that you don't know the answer to, or that that may not come up with a um, uh, a really uh, you know really clear you know high profile um, uh, paper. So I don't. I think that's always been my mentality. Some people have different mentalities on on what types of projects that they that they uh, like to pursue, but yeah. I always I, I guess I prefer taking some risks with. With scientific projects and that's where the great science comes from then in the end <laughs> so in the last 45 minutes we have taken a journey through your scientific career can you maybe give a short summary about your most important findings or something that you might have missed uh, on this interview yeah so i think um over the last really you know five five to seven years what we've really what i've really been focused on is is understanding you know what are enhancer sequences and how are they really critical for organismal development? So we've done a lot of work in knocking these out in mice to see, are they, um, does, does that actually have any sort of impact on, on, on organismal viability in addition to having impacts on gene expression? Um, and so what we found um, is that in, in, a, in a lot of cases, knocking out enhancers from the mouse genome does cause um, not really severe um, Uh, problems that substantially impact the viability of the mice, but it does alter their their developmental patterning um, or, or or their development in in ways um, that uh, are are important. Um, so I think we what we've really you know learned over the last seven years of of doing uh, knockout studies and uh, of enhancers is that these sites really do play an important role for for development. So yeah, thank you, Diana, for your time and for being on the show. Okay, thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Epigenetics Podcast from Active Motif. We hope you enjoyed it. You can find all the mentioned references in the show notes. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast platform so you never miss an episode. We'd love to hear from you, so please send us your feedback on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, or via email at podcast at activemotif.com and we'll give you a shout-out in a future episode. For more great epigenetics content, check out the Active Motif blog at activemotif.com 
forward slash blog. Thanks for listening and stay tuned.